Well, hello, friends. Uh, did anyone else wake up this morning, look out the window, and think people in Florida be jealous of us right now? Anybody? Yeah, man. Spring has sprung around here, and it is an incredible, incredible time to be in Michigan. Uh, we are also in week two of a series called 50, which promises to be an incredible journey. Uh, 50 was named in honor of an incredibly significant period of time. Uh, as Randy mentioned at the top, 50 days separate the crucifixion of Jesus from the birth of of the church. And during those days, it's no exaggeration to say that the course of human history was forever changed. In just over seven weeks' time, here's what happened. I made a slide. Uh, Jesus returns from the grave. Then he spent 40 days with his disciples revisiting ideas that he had taught them before he died, uh, that they somehow had better ability to hear and understand after he died, as I said last week, when somebody predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you want to listen to everything else they're going to say and take notes. Would you agree? Right. Uh, then, uh, after 40 days, he sends them to Jerusalem to wait, and he tells them they're going to receive power from God, which would have made about as much sense to them as it would to you and I. But again, if your rabbi dies and comes back, you do what he tells you to do. So there you go. Uh, then he ascends visibly into the heavens while they watched in wonder. And then finally, on day 50, 3,000 people in the city of Jerusalem become followers of Jesus. The church explodes to life. And so by all accounts, it was an unprecedented period of time. And during this series, we're unpacking the details of what happened during those 50 days, because in many ways, they set the stage for what has followed for the past 2,000 years. And for today, one last time, we're going to actually focus on the events of that first Easter Sunday. If you missed either of the previous two, you can catch up on the website. But our third week talking about the events of that first Easter. So far, we've explored the scenes where Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene that first Easter morning. And also when he appeared to his disciples while they were in a locked room in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to talk about two other people that Jesus visited. And this account actually happens between the other two. And once again, early followers of Jesus are confronted with something simultaneously unbelievable and undeniable that Jesus had literally returned from the grave. I will pick up the story in Luke's account of Jesus' life. It starts in Luke chapter 24. It goes like this. It says, now on that same day, so that's Easter Sunday, two of them, the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So just jump into this moment emotionally and wonder with me, what were these first disciples talking about? They had watched in horror on that first Good Friday while, the, while their leader, their rabbi, their savior died on the cross. And in an instant for them, everything had changed. And so I bet what they talked about was misexpectations and general frustrations. See, they had followed Jesus because they believed that he was the one that God had sent to rescue the nation of Israel from the oppression they experienced at the hands of the Roman Empire. Uh, they were sick of the Roman occupation. I mean, they weren't wearing literal chains, but they were a people under the rule of a foreign power. They were sick of the taxes. They were sick of the soldiers in the streets. They were sick of the fact that even when they went to worship God in the temple in the center of Jerusalem, that from a higher platform, Roman soldiers were watching them. They had cried out to God, and finally, it seemed as if God had answered their prayers and sent them the rescuer, the Messiah, the Christ. 
And then a week before that first Easter Sunday, Jesus had entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that one day the Messiah would do just that. And the people of Jerusalem had lined the streets waving palm branches and saying the word Hosanna, which basically means deliver us. It, it was a political term that was charged with meaning. It was like, God, rescue us from our oppressors. And so energy around Jesus' life was just peaking on that Palm Sunday. Then it just got better. He went directly to the temple in Jerusalem and confronted the Jewish religious establishment, which had gone off the rails. And his first followers believed that the revolution he came to bring was accelerating and they got a front row seat. But then in 24 hours that were as unexpected as they were disruptive, everything changed. After a final meal with his closest friends, Jesus was betrayed and arrested. He was falsely accused, tried, convicted, and crucified before sundown on that Friday. And so the disciples, if you say, what was their emotional state that first Easter Sunday? I would say they were devastated. I would say they felt misled. I would even say that they felt hopeless. And they weren't sure what to do. I mean, Saturday had been the longest day any of them had ever experienced. So they got up in the morning and after a conversation with a few of the female disciples, they decided to take a walk. And that's where Luke picks up the story. So they're on this walk to Emmaus. He tells us as they talked and discussed these things with each other, and you gotta love this, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And I love that. It's like Jesus is messing with his disciples. I don't know why I like that so much, but hope he doesn't do that with me. But anyway, here we go. He asked them, and this is so fun, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Like, hey guys, what, what, what are you talking about? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleophas, by the way, only place Cleophas appears in the text, so he got a mention, which is kind of cool. Anyway, asked him, he said, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? And like, in other words, dude, where have you been? I mean, maybe you didn't notice, but the whole city has been in an uproar for the past week. I mean, we all thought that God had sent the Messiah, the Christ. He was going to rescue us. It was going to be a revolution. Rome was finally going to be put into his place. How did you miss it? And Jesus just plays along. He's like, guys, this sounds fascinating. T -t Tell me some more. Seriously, what things, he asked. You just got to love that. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, like he was the real deal. The chief priest, that's the Jewish religious establishment, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but here it is. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, to rescue Israel, to restore Israel, to deliver Israel, like present reality. That's what they believed the Messiah would do, that he would finally kick out their oppressors. And what's more, they said it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, and this is where the story gets really weird, he's like, some of our women amazed us. And actually, Luke, in a previous section, says that when the women told them, they didn't know what to do with it because it just didn't make sense. But the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning where Jesus had been laid, and they didn't find his body. But there's more. Uh, they came to us and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And just notice with me that they said, we had hoped that he was the one. We had believed he was the one. We had thought he was the one. But now we're not sure what to believe about him. Because honestly, a crucified Messiah 
is, is just an inconceivable reality. And the, and the women's testimony that he was alive again, that, that just seems like nonsense. Jesus simply couldn't be alive. It was impossible. So they reasoned what any rational person would reason on that first Easter morning. Someone stole his body. So when Jesus asks them what happened, they simply report what they knew for sure, what they had experienced in this past week. And as I imagine it, at this point, Jesus begins to smile. Because these two guys are about to be the first people in human history to understand something incredible that the death and resurrection of Jesus had been a part of God's plan since the beginning. And the clues to this reality have been hiding in plain sight for hundreds of years in the first century in the pages of the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. Here's what Jesus says. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, that's those Jewish prophets, the Old Testament writings have spoken. Did not the Christ, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then this, and beginning with Moses and the prophets. Now Moses is that great leader of ancient Israel who's credited with the first five books in your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And we, we can't know for sure everything Jesus explained that day, but, but there's one story that I'm absolutely certain that he unpacked for them because it was the defining moment in ancient Israel's history. It's the story of God rescuing people from an oppressive foreign power. If that's sounding familiar, hang with me. And it's a story that dramatically and dynamically points to what Jesus would accomplish 1,500 years later. It's a story called Exodus, and it's the second story or second book, rather, in the Old Testament of your Bible. It's a story of a rescue that changed the world then, and it's a story that points to another rescue that still changes lives today. So very briefly, to kind of catch you up on what's going on with Exodus, as that story begins, we learn that God has been silent for 400 years. And during that time, the descendants of a man named Israel have been enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh the king. And life for them was tragic and life for them was hard. Their days were filled with making bricks out of mud and straw that were used to construct storehouse cities for the Egyptians. Here's a picture of mud and straw, just in case you've never seen it before. There's a little joke there for you. But yeah, um, and it's fun. Uh, my wife had the opportunity to actually make bricks with mud and straw as a rich cultural experience during a trip to Ukraine about 12 years ago. Um, and as she described it, they had a couple different options, but when they said they could make bricks like they did in ancient Egypt, she thought, wow, what a great opportunity to step into the Bible story, right? This is going to be awesome. About five minutes into making bricks out of mud and straw, she realized that she never wanted to do it again. She said the mud would like dry on your hands and under your fingernails and then would dry in the sun and it would like crack. And she said, and what made matters worse, when you're stuffing the straw into the brick molds, the straw was sharp and would cut your hands. So you end up bloody, mud-filled cracks. She goes, it was lovely. It may surprise you to learn she's never asked to go back to Ukraine. I, I don't know why. Uh, but, but anyway, that's what life was like for the ancient Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt. Every day was the same. And their slave drivers would stand over them with whips made of leather. And I just imagine that older men would show the younger men the welts on their back as a way to try to motivate them to keep working, keep serving. And they were fed, uh, but they were fed barely enough to stay alive. That was their existence. But, but see, the amazing thing about those ancient people is that they were also a people of promise. 
And around the campfire at night, they would tell their children the story of the day 500 years earlier when God had made contact with a man named Abraham. And God had promised Abraham that his descendants would one day become a nation with a land of their own and that they would be a people through whom God would bless the entire world. And to be fair, if I'm a kid sitting around the fire listening to the story, part of that promise had come true. We were the descendants of Abraham. The ancient Israelites were descendants of Abraham. And they had become a nation-sized population. But they had no land. They had no hope. They had no future. They had no reason for hope or hope in their future. The reality screamed to them, you're slaves. You'll always be slaves. Your children will be slaves. Your grandchildren will be slaves. This is it. The promise to Abraham is a lie if it was ever made at all. 500 years ago? Come on. I mean, look at the powerful temple of the Egyptian gods. They're real. They have brought their people into a position of power and authority over you. Check out the evidence. But then, and as I imagine it, when almost all hope was gone, God made contact again. And he appeared to a man named Moses and changed the course of human history with these words. Then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. And if I'm Moses, I have a question just before he goes any farther. I want to call time out and go, yeah, where have you been? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. They're still my people in Egypt. I have seen. He continues. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Like I'm listening. I'm concerned about their suffering. I care. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. And this is a famous line you probably know. A land flowing with milk and honey. And in an instant, Moses realizes that the stories are true and the promises are true. And God has seen and God cares and God has a plan to rescue them. And that plan involves sending Moses to Pharaoh with a very famous message made most popular by Charlton Heston, but we'll let that slide, right? When Moses goes to Pharaoh and says what? Remember? Let my people go. And what follows is one of the most amazing stories in the entire Bible. And I would summarize the story this way. God enters the ancient world and plays by the rules of the ancient world to deliver a message to the ancient world that they couldn't understand any other way. That's a lot of words. I'll read it again. God enters the ancient world, the context of the ancient world, plays by the rules of the ancient world to deliver a message to the ancient world that they could not understand any other way. And this is how God has behaved since the beginning of time. He accommodates his message to the capacity of his audience. And I say this because when we read the story of the Exodus today, it seems a bit strange. God does things that don't seem like things God would do. And I've even had friends who have been part of a journey of faith, who've walked away from their faith because of stories like this one. But I always tell them, I think that's a big mistake because it misses the ancient context of the story. You have to remember, the people who lived through the events of the Exodus didn't think twice about God's actions because God engaged them in a way they could comprehend. He was establishing a nation for himself and he waded into the mess of the ancient world and played by its rules. He spoke in the only terms an Egyptian pharaoh could understand, power and violence. And so through a series of plagues, God introduces himself to the descendants of Abraham as well as the people 
of Egypt as one by one he humiliates the Egyptian gods. Just by way of example, there's one of the plagues where the sun becomes blackened and it's a direct commentary on the, uh, the inability of the Egyptian sun god Ra to really control things. God is saying to them, I'm in control, not Ra. And the plagues are powerful, but in the end the plagues are ineffective because Pharaoh continually refused to let the children of Israel go. And it's then when God executes his plan to rescue his people. And hang with me, it gets a bit strange. Here's what God tells Moses to tell the people. To speak to the whole community of Israel. Tell them that on the 10th day of this month, each man must get a lamb from his flock. And you're like, where is this going? They must not have any flaws. Then the whole community of Israel must kill them when the sun goes down and do not break any of its bones. Strange detail, that one, but here we go. Take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where you eat the lambs. And you have to understand that the first people that heard these words were like, What? What? And bad day to be a lamb in Egypt, apparently, right? Everybody get a lamb. Make sure it's the right size for you and your family to eat. And then kill the lamb. Let it bleed out. Don't break any of the bones. And then do this. Put, put the blood on the door frames of your house. And it didn't really make any sense to them. But God had a plan, and he was asking them to trust him. And if he trusted him, then he was going to bring them freedom. He continues. He says, eat with the meat or eat the meat while your coat is tucked in your belt. Put your sandals on your feet. Take your walking stick in your hand and eat the food quickly. It's the Lord's Passover. God wants them to be ready to leave because he knows something they don't. When this 10th plague comes, they will be free. As long as they trust him by doing something that made no sense, as long as they believed God when he said the blood of the lamb would protect them from the 10th plague, and they do, and the night of the first Passover, God rescues the children of Israel from Egypt. And it's impossible for us to fully grasp the significance of the exodus, the exit from slavery for the nation of Israel. Even today, all of us have Jewish friends who still remember the Passover each spring. They remember it as the founding narrative of their nation. But the exodus, or the Passover rather, also foreshadowed a very different sort of exodus and a very different sort of Passover lamb, which brings us back to the conversation Jesus had with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. As Jesus spoke the, of the story of Moses, his disciples recognized more than a few things they had missed during their time with Jesus before the crucifixion. They recalled the day they had been by the Jordan River, south of Jerusalem, listening to a prophet named John teach when John had suddenly stopped and looked up and pointed and said something that, again, at the time made no sense, Jesus approached and he said, look, the Lamb of God, literally God's Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. Look, God's Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And again, God's Lamb would immediately have made them think about the Exodus, about the Passover, and on the other side of the resurrection, they realized something else, that when John identified Jesus as God's Passover lamb, he wasn't speaking metaphorically, he was speaking literally. As I imagine it, they also would have recalled the day shortly before his death when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served. 
Instead, he came to serve others. He came to give his life as the price for setting many people free. Strange things to say, setting many people free. But if you're a first century Jew and your context is all of a sudden thinking of Jesus as a Passover lamb, you're like, wait a minute, setting many people free. That sounds like, that sounds like Egypt. Jesus is saying he's a new kind of Passover lamb facilitating a new kind of exodus. And then, of course, it would have just hit them all like a wave. It dawned on them that even the timing of Jesus' crucifixion was significant. The week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion was the week of Passover. Jews from all over the world would have flooded into the city of Jerusalem to remember the night their ancestors were rescued from Egyptian slavery. Moreover, the day that has become known as Palm Sunday to the Jewish people was the day that every family selected a lamb to sacrifice, as well as a lamb was selected for the altar of the main temple in Jerusalem, and that that lamb would be sacrificed on anyone, anybody want to guess the day of the week? Just out there, right? Friday, right. And then there are the accounts of what happened on the cross. I mean, John tells us in his account that none of Jesus' bones were broken, that Jesus bled out because of the injuries he sustained on his way to the cross. And then Luke tells us that Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon. That's interesting because that's exactly the same time a priest in the temple would slit the throat of the Passover lamb after uttering three words. It is, help me if you know it, finished. And those are the same words Jesus utters before his death. So it's like, Jesus' conversation on the road to Emmaus illuminated the connection between the two halves of our Bible in a brilliant fashion. As it turns out, Jesus' death, which appeared to be a failure, was in fact a dramatic victory. It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant between God and people, and it was the inauguration of a New Testament or a new relationship between God and people. Finally, it was an invitation to be a part of a new and much more profound sort of exodus. To be clear, it wasn't the exodus that the first disciples were initially expecting. I mean, the Messiah wasn't sent by God to bring freedom to a nation in functional slavery to Rome. It was way better than that. Instead, he was to offer freedom to a world enslaved in sin. And just like the first exodus invited people to trust God and the blood of the lamb, the new exodus invites all people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, even people in Ada, to place our trust in the blood of God's lamb and to step into freedom by that trust from the enslaving power of sin in this life and to step into a freedom of fear of what happens after this life. When we place our faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we become a part of the new exodus. And this has the ability to change everything for everyone. This, friends, is, is what has been called for 2,000 years the gospel, the good news. That we don't earn right standing with God by our behavior, and it's a good thing. But then, in fact, we, earn right standing with, we don't earn right standing with God at all. We simply our applied right standing when we place our faith in the blood of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. And so just the, the simple question for you and me here today, you know, have you done that? Is that part of your story? And if not, I would just encourage you to really wrestle down the why. What is it that keeps you from placing your faith there? In fact, I'm, I want to give you a homework assignment if you're up for it because I'm feeling spunky and it's finals time, right? 
for those of you in college. And it just goes like this. It's really simple. It's like, um, if, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, just find someone this week in your life that may be on the outside of faith and just have an intentional conversation. You don't have to try to convert them. That's not your job, right? But just have a conversation about them. Help them maybe ask better questions. Help them express their doubts and their fears and their anxieties. And, and what is it for them that keeps them from faith? And if you're on the other side of that, if you're the person who's still kind of kicking the tires, that's great too. Just your assignment goes the other way. Find someone who's a follower of Jesus. I'm available on Wednesday, okay? And have a conversation and, and just process where you are, process what you're experiencing, process what you're feeling. Even interact with some of this material if it's helpful for you. And because I feel like there's a moment for all of us where we have to decide what to do with Jesus. And what's so powerful to me about the Bible is, is that the Bible is this wonderful story of God revealing this plan to redeem and restore everything over thousands of years. And it culminates with the cross and the resurrection. I'll end with our big idea for today because um, I really like it. It goes like this. Throughout the Bible, God played by the rules of this world in order to launch a movement not of this world through a covenant that stands as an invitation to everyone in this world. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving the beautiful, confusing, wondrous story of you moving into a broken world and bringing about restoration. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. Perhaps many of us have sung songs about it for our whole lives and never fully grasped why. But we thank you for that blood and what it means. We thank you for the empty tomb and the promise of eternal life. For today, though, we ask for your grace and your peace to be on us all. Give us courage to have a conversation this week. And may we find that conversation catalytic to our faith and the faith of our friends. And so we bless you, we thank you, we love you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. amen. Friends, go in peace, we'll see you next week.